We have the scriptures up to read it. First Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word. <clears throat> well, I'm feeling a deep, sense, a deep sense of God's timing and provision for us to be going through this part of Corinthians as Pastor Andrew takes his leave of absence. Uh, we've been talking about the spiritual gifts for three weeks. And, you know, one of the amazing and beautiful applications or, I think, principles of that teaching was that we want, God wants us to be confident in our giftings. He wants us to be full, fully grown in the use of our giftings, but yet interdependent on one another. I'm feeling that right now for us. That's no longer just a nice idea. We absolutely need God to work this way in this church, that he would activate you and me and us to use our giftings with conviction and confidence and joy and love and depend on one another. But yet Paul, last week, he left us with a little bit of a cliffhanger because he said, I will show you a more excellent way. Because it's, very, it's a beautiful thing to have the gifts. It's a beautiful thing to be empowered by God. And yet it actually can be a pitfall if we stop there. There is, there is something much more fundamental to being a Christian. And so in, in chapter 13... Where the, the chapter we are at, God is going to bring us, Paul's going to bring us to the hot burning center of our calling as Christians. And that is the call to love. Just excuse me a minute. Oh, I'm sorry you had to hear that. <laughs> we, come to this, we come to the issue of love 
But the problem with love is that most of us have experienced people who love us according to their vision of it, and that doesn't always feel like love. And so, you know, I feel that as a husband and as a father, right, that I'm going to tend to skew the way I love my family towards my own behavior. So, you know, instead of acknowledging I was impatient, I say, well, you deserve that. You did something wrong. And so we, as human beings, we're wired to skew love towards our behavior. And so we become the Lord of love. We define love the way we want to define it. And that leads to all kinds of evil and hurt and wickedness. And so rather than conforming to love as a higher principle, if we, uh, so if we want to truly love, we need to have a vision of it that is higher than ourselves. We, we should not be the Lord of love. We need to conform to love as the higher principle. But we can ask this question is who gets to define that? Who gets to define love? And so if God is loving, would he not show us the way of love? And that's how Paul says this. I will show you our more excellent way. There is a way of love. And so one of the ways that makes the Bible believable is that it testifies to itself. Meaning that when you read it, you can sense its divine origin. That when you read what God says is love, you can't help in your spirit but to say amen. And so as we go into this passage, I ask you to, to see for yourself if this resonates from you as we look at how God unpacks for us what is love. So Paul starts off here in verse 1. He comes back to the gifts and says, you know, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels but have not love, I'm a clanging symbol. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, actually I, I, I relate to that. I want to be able to do that. But if I don't have love, I am nothing. I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned. Some of us are amazingly generous with our energy and our talents. But if we don't have love, you gain nothing. So to start us off here, I think what Paul is doing is he's calling out a pitfall of Christianity. A temptation that we face. And really I would say it's a pitfall of human nature, especially in America especially American culture, um, is that we have an overemphasis on ability, gifting, talent, and accomplishment. We are obsessed with it. Our, our, that we, we feel we're as good as our productivity. The harder you work, the more you accomplish, the greater you are, right? America, we live in a meritocracy. A meritocracy is the idea that, hey, you have the freedom to do be anything and gain anything you want. So any failure to do so is really a lack of ability on your part. Now, we know that's not really true, but that's the idea of a meritocracy. We just believe that 
As long as you do the, the, your, you put in the work and you have the talent, that'll be your salvation. But conversely, when we look with admiration on those who gain a lot and accomplish a lot, the traits that we prize is believe in yourself and work your butt off. That's not bad. But if that is your main goal in life, Paul's gonna have a big problem with that. He's gonna say, you're gonna gain nothing and be nobody if that's what you think life's about. And add to that how Christianity produces, not, uh, not only are we swimming in this meritocracy as Christians, but even within Christianity, we just learned that, that we gain from the Spirit a great empowerment of knowledge and spiritual abilities and deep resources for, and motivation for self-sacrifice. It's an amazing thing to be able to understand Scripture it's an amazing thing to have gifts of generosity and, and mercy and, and discernment. What a wonderful thing God gives us, gifts of, of healing and prophetic powers. And so what Paul is warning us is there is a seduction that we can fall prey to as Christians. Look at all that I'm doing for God. Look at all the good that's being accomplished through our gifts. Look at the way I sacrifice for the kingdom. Yet Paul says, if we have not love, we are completely missing the point of our calling as Christians. And I'm, we, should, we need to really see how strongly Paul says this. He says, if you are amazing at digging out the truths of Scripture and powerful expand, expounding them so people are weeping... But you are not a loving person. You are dead weight to the church. You are nothing. The church would be better off without you, is what I hear Paul saying. If you give of yourself completely for others and your faith, but have not love, you're one of those people that we all cringe. Because when you're, when you're giving and giving and giving, it comes with an edge. It comes with strings attached. It comes with a judgment. It comes with an anger behind it. You might make beautiful music to the Lord, but without love, it starts to sound like nails on chalkboard to the rest of us. I had a visual of a car. Imagine your neighbor has this beautiful car, which I pictured as a Lamborghini. So I don't know why. That's just the classic beautiful car, but maybe for you it's something else. Uh, imagine your neighbor has this beautiful Lamborghini in their driveway, and he invites you over to check it out, and and it's like, wow, look at, the, look at the curves on this and the beautiful paint job and, and it's just unique design and, and the, be- the, the, the rims. And, and you say, hey, let's check out, let's, let's, you know, pop the hood, let's see the engine. And there's no engine in that car. What would you do? You'd, you'd kind of laugh, right? You'd be like, this, bro, what are you doing? This is just taking up space in your driveway. It can't. You're better off just buying a toy Lamborghini and putting it on your shelf than to have that car in your driveway with no engine in it. What a waste. It's just a hunk of junk. Paul is saying without love, our lives are like that Lamborghini. Our lives are hollow. We might have the nice curves and the bells and whistles. We got no engine. The very purpose of that car is to drive. The very purpose of human existence 
is to love one another. To be made in the image of God. God is not the gifts. God is love. That's why this is the higher principle. This is why love is greater than hope or faith. God is not hope. God is not faith. But God is love. So this is what we are called to. Our lives are hollow without it no matter how gifted we are. So I want to note something. I don't know if you caught this. Paul, though, to get our attention to be loving, is still appealing to self-interest. Did you notice that? He says, if you are not loving, your, your music, which you want to sound beautiful, sounds like nails on chalkboard. You know, implying, don't you want to sound beautiful? If you have these gifts of knowledge but not love, you are nothing. Implying, don't you want to be somebody? Don't you want to gain something? So he's still appealing to self-interest. So I just want us to note that. He's, Paul's going to come back to that. But I think what he's doing here is he's saying he wants to get our attention. And so now we're, we should be asking, well, shoot. I don't want to be nobody. I don't want to be a hunk of junk taking up space. I want to, I want to love. And so the question then is, what is love? And so Paul says it is a way. And so this next section, to me, I would, the, way I, the, the analogy I thought of is it's kind of like a road map. Paul's going to show us the way of love. Okay, what is love? And he's going to say, you, this, is, this is the journey you have to go on. These are the, the, the milestones of love that you need to be aware of along the way. And so verse 4, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all, thi all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. That is beautiful in the English, isn't it? But the Greek actually has a lot more depth as it describes love. And so I'm going to rely a lot more on my research into the Greek to, to unpack this section and walk through this picture of love, this roadmap of love. One thing I'll start off by saying is in the Greek, the English and the ESV at least, not all translations do this, but in the ESV, as crisp and poetic as that is, describes love primarily as adjectives. Love is kind. Love is not rude. But actually in the Greek, they are all verbs. They are all present tense active verbs. Ongoing action. And so, I think that is important for us. Life is a series of moments that require you to act a certain way. What direction will you choose? The more excellent way, as what Paul is presenting to us, the way of love. It also highlights the idea that love is action. Love manifests in time and space. The proverb that has always stuck with me is, I don't know the actual reference. I forgot to say it, but it's, uh, uh, I forgot to remember what it is, but it says, better is open rebuke than hidden love. In other words, love that is hidden is no love at all. 
It must be expressed. There's, it must put itself in action. And I think that also means love is not primarily a feeling. Feelings are good. Feelings are important. But they're not great indicators as to how you ought to act. And so we need something that is over our feelings and guides our feelings to the right action. So no matter how you're feeling in a situation, God tells you you can still act in the way of love. So I'm going to walk through this and I, my hope is that it, God just would give us a picture that would convict us and inspire us towards love. So Paul begins, I'm always interested by how he, when he's going to explain love, how he starts. The number one thing he says, the first thing he says, love waits patiently. The first thing love does is it has a waiting posture, an ability to wait. In other words, love does not blunder in, in blind reaction. It is sensitive to timing. It is sensitive to, you know, Paul says, speak the truth in love as fits the occasion. So love is looking for the right time. It, it, so it's, it's waiting. It's able to be patient. It's able to um, not blunder in. So there's a waiting energy towards love, a patience. Love shows kindness. If patience reflects a holding back of a negative reaction, Kindness is the giving of a positive action. So in the face of maybe something difficult, not only are you showing, you're showing patience by maybe refusing a negative or a, a knee-jerk reaction, but you're actually moving in with kindness, which is showing, the idea is that you're showing warmth to them. You have a welcoming energy, a thoughtfulness and helpfulness. And the way that you engage, kindness is soothing and comforting. Elsewhere, Paul says, let love be genuine. And then he says, show one another brotherly affection. So love has a warmth and an affection that tries to even soothe a painful situation. So not only is there patience, but there is kindness Love does not burn with envy. So again, in the Greek, we're going to see that it is, there's a connection with a Hebrew word for boiling. And so that's why in the, 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 the English says love is, does not envy, but really there's an idea of burning in, with envy. I think we all will feel envious at times. Envy will be, but are you burning with it? I like that, even that imagery of boiling. What does boiling mean? It means you, you put something in it over a period of time and it cooks it. Are you boiling with envy where it's just cooking out all the love that you can have? Because you just are keep thinking, obsessing about what other people have and what you don't have. You cannot love if that is your posture towards others. And I know this struggle. I have family members that have a lot more materialistically than I do. I have family members that go on their dream vacations twice a year, every year that I've known them as adults. I'm like, what the heck? How many tropical places can you go to? And yet, I sense the Lord convicting me 
don't burn with envy. Because I know I, I turn into, it turns into resentment instead of love. I want to love the people around me, not because of what they have or I don't have. Love does not brag. Another commentator explained it as, is not anxious to impress. Love is at home with a posture of modesty and quietness rather than loud triumphalism. Look at all I've, I've done. The idea of puffing up, puffing up yourself is some of the imagery there. Constantly wanting the intention and praise of others. Love is content with action for the sake of the good of that action, not the accolades and praise that you think you deserve or maybe you loudly demand. Closely related to bragging This next one is arrogance, but I think we'll say this a little more in an action-oriented way. Love does not cherish inflated ideas of its own importance. So this also has this idea of puffing up an obsession with self and how others view us or ought to view us. That's the puffed up part. Um is we want people to see us as very important and we, we kind of have this demand for a type of, of respect or a type of, of, of attention. So maybe leadership that might look like, how dare you challenge me or disagree with me? And maybe as a parent, well, you, you better get my approval for all your decisions to your kids, you're telling them that. A spouse, you need to be available for my every need. A friend, why don't you include me in everything you do? Just a couple, just to I'll give you a visual of, the, you know, bragging and arrogance sounds similar, so just a visual to highlight the difference. I think I put it on here. Did I put it on there? That's the next slide. Oh, I'm going to have to tell you. So bragging, I thought of uh, a good Disney. I, I looked at Disney characters at this point for these bad ones. But Gaston, you guys know Gaston from Beauty and the Beast? He's the braggart, right? He's like, look at all I've done. He's flexing his muscles and he's got all the animals he's killed on the wall and he's just all about, look how beautiful I am. That's the braggart. Lord Farquaad is the arrogant one or the one who cherishes his own importance. He wants everyone to kind of treat him with a certain reverence. Um, And so love is not a braggart. It's not always trying to show off and love is not um, obsessed with its self-importance. Now, I like, it's important to say obsessed because we all have self-importance. We all have dignity. And it's important to be attentive to that. But again, I think that the Greek implies this cherishing of an overinflation of yourself. Love does not ignore the need to act with propriety. This is the idea of love is not rude. I'll just quote this, one commentator explained this, is it's the thoughtless pursuit, being rude is the thoughtless pursuit of the immediate wishes of the self, regardless of the conventions and courtesies of interpersonal life. So love actually takes into account what the conventions and circumstances require. Quick example is I catch myself being rude, where I wanna talk to somebody, and I think what I have to say is more important, so I just blunder in, no matter what they're talking about. It's a little rude. I should give him space or, excuse me, may interrupt. So love is actually sensitive 
to the conventions of courtesy. That's a part of love. And so even in Corinthians, they had a problem with being rude. If you remember, they were celebrating the communion in a way that was essentially rude, where some of the church members, the important ones, got to uh, eat, take communion right at the table, right in the main room, and the rest had to wait outside and hope there was some left over. That was rude. And so love is sensitive to the conventions um, of courtesy towards all. Love does not scheme to get its own way. Love is not seeking to gain its own advantage or obsessed with how it can get on top either and take advantage either, either over others or in spite of others, not caring about them. Love is not easily provoked to anger. So this word for provoked has this essence of sharpness, right? Love is not on a hairpin trigger of anger or irritation. One picture is, think of a balloon that's easily poked, right? So we talked about being inflated with boasting or arrogance. But one of the other things that can come with that is this irritability. I think that's a good English word I support from the ESV, um, but it's not easily provoked. It's, so think of a balloon that's really puffed up. You can easily pop it. And again, we're not saying you don't put, you have no ego. We all have an ego. But if you blow up a balloon the right amount, you can poke it and it doesn't break. But when you really puff it up, any little thing, and, and you, when you see that balloon all blown up, how do you feel around it? You're like, ah, it's going to. And that's how we feel around people who are irritable. We're like, ah, when are we going to make them pop? Ah. And so love is, has its ego in place so that it's, it's not easily provoked and popping off. Love does not keep a record of wrongs. And so the, the, the picture here is of, of someone who keeps a close account of something. So imagine a, um, a really, uh, what's the adjective I'm looking for? An accountant that is very meticulous of his ledger. That's a good thing for an accountant. It's a bad thing in relationships, keeping record of right and wrongs. And so love is not wanting to stay bitter or begrudging. Um, it is not looking to nurse wounds and let bitterness fester. Love wants to forgive. It wants to move on. Instead of keeping this ledger, another image is of the way uh, we could be competitive and obsess over the score. I'm going to obsess over the 49ers score. And I keep checking my ESPN app. What's the score? So that those kind of energies, an accountant or a competitive sports team, is what we can do towards one another. The people we love or we say we love, and yet we, we keep rehearsing all the ways they've wronged us. So we can be justified in our anger. Justified in the way we, we treat them with a cold shoulder or whatever. Bible says that's not love. We're not, we're not keeping that record of, of wrongs. Just a couple more here. Hang with me. This is God's word. He's showing us love. He's giving us the roadmap. Love does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but rejoices in the truth. Mm. If love is the idea that we need to shed it ourselves of self-interest and the ego as the center of our life, that means we're no longer trying to puff ourselves up and image manage. 
We're not trying to have this ulterior agenda for our own advantage. And so what that means is we are then free to delight in what is true. We're no longer rejoicing in falsehood or in the, or in the failures or wrongdoings of others. In other words, what Paul is saying here, I think, is that love seeks to have integrity. Love wants to rejoice in the truth because it, has, it is able to not be so obsessed with how everyone else is viewing them that can lead to lies, that can lead to manipulation. But now love is free to rejoice in what is true, what is good, it celebrates that. If someone has failed, love wants to help. If there are good things happening, true things, love celebrates that. And for this last part, I'm going to read a translation. The English is a little odd, but it is helpful. You know, it says love hopes all things, believes all things, endures all things. Um, What does that mean? So here's one translation that I liked. It never tires of support, never loses faith, never exhausts hope, never gives up. I think that's helpful, but I, even then I have some problems with that, with the, especially the never, can feel like it's saying, if we're in a bad situation, we better stay in that situation because that's what love demands, right? We better never give up. But I like what it's trying to say about never tiring. There's an energy that love has. And I think what Paul is doing in this section is saying, here's what love looks like with people. But the other thing that can affect love is difficult circumstances also press on us to want to give up. Difficult circumstances can can cause us to lose love. And so what this is saying is that you are always moving towards people, even when things are hard, with this energy of love. An energy that is always wanting to be helpful. How can I help in this situation? Love that is always believing and trusting, hoping for good. And love that has this energy of never giving up, even though you may have to give up. And so what I think Paul is saying is that that love will always have this testimony in hard situations that it could be said of your actions that you did all you could to help. You came in with a positive, hopeful, believing energy and you clearly did not give up until it was clear you had to. So we want to be careful that Paul is describing love, but wisdom will require decisions but it's describing the actions that you take and the posture you have towards people when circumstances are hard. A believing, helping, never giving up energy. That's a beautiful thing of love. It's a testimony of love. And so the question becomes, how do we have this kind of love? How do we walk in this love? It's the path of love. It's the journey of love. How can we do that? I was telling my wife recently that when we get older, I want to get like an off-roading vehicle so we can go backpacking without the hiking part. 
I just want to go drive out there instead of having to walk for miles and miles. That's going to be hard. And she's like, no, I want to do the John Muir Trail. I'm like, you're crazy. And that's how it can feel with this journey of love. It's just, oh, that sounds very hard. And so Paul's answer is to say, look to the future. Look to the future to empower us for love. And in verse 8, he, we'll read this again. It says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know, know fully, even as I have been fully known. So what Paul seems to be saying here, he comes back to the gifts. And he makes this interesting point where he says they're actually a temporary provision. So he's trying to get us away from being obsessed with the gifts and our abilities and our talents. And he says, actually, they reflect our weakness. You need the gifts because in a sense you are childish compared to what you will be with the Lord in heaven forever. You don't really understand what's going on. There's limitations. You know in part, you prophesy in part. You know, like, you remember um, my wife shared how she gave a verse to me because I was discouraged. So God gave her this gift of Zechariah 4, 6. But I'm like, that's because I didn't know that passage. I barely knew Zechariah was in the Bible. I was, like, I'm just, in this side of heaven, we're, our knowledge is so incomplete. So the gifts really, the way I described it is the gifts are like training wheels. Paul is saying this is the childish phase. When we don't quite understand what's happening, we need to lean on the gifts. When we get sick, we struggle in our faith, so God gives us gifts of healing. When we, we often don't have wisdom to understand what to do, and so maybe there's gifts of prophecy, the training wheels, to help keep us going. But when the perfect comes, and that hasn't come yet, all of those gifts will be unnecessary. We will experience the fullness of what God is preparing for us. You will know fully. We won't need these gifts. Even as you are now fully known. And so actually the gifts reflect a problem that there is an asymmetry in our relationship with God. He knows us perfectly. But we don't see him perfectly. But we will know him for the fullness of what we were created for. We will know him in that fullness. And Paul is saying, look to that. That is your destiny. And love will abide with you and God forever. That is what you should be living for. And so I think this is the key to our ability to love. Because what is going on in this passage when we read love, when you read about what he's saying, don't do these things, but do these things. What is the common denominator is I think it's ironic that the opposite of a loving person is obviously somebody who needs love. 
What do we see about the person who isn't loving? They're trying to consume and puff themselves up and brag and they're, they're envious and jealous. They clearly need to be loved. And they're searching for it in all the wrong ways. And so they can't rejoice in the truth. They're not free to do that. And so Paul is appealing to self-interest. And he's saying, don't look to the gifts to meet that hole. Don't look to the gifts. Don't look to your talent. Don't look to your status. Don't look to your station to meet the deepest needs of your soul. You will be no one and you will gain nothing in this life or the next. If that is how you live life. But your soul does need something. It is desperately looking for something. And that's to be fully known. To be important to the one who is all important. To be loved and known by the creator. So the person who can love, as outlined in 1 Corinthians here, is the person whose self-interest has been fully secured in the love of God for you. And Paul said it like this, the life I now live, I live by faith in the one who loves me and gave himself for me. Not that we first loved God, but that he first loved us and gave his son as a sacrifice for our sins. And so the image of love that I, we just talked about, that I just shared with you, if it captures your heart, and you are inspired and say, yeah, that's love, that's how I want to live, then God is summoning you to believe in the good news that he is God. He has come in the flesh. He has secured your forgiveness and has secured your eternity. He will bring you home face to face with him in the fullness of love. Love is your future. Love is your destiny. You will be with God in his kingdom in his house. So start loving now. Start experiencing that now. Bring heaven to earth. That's not the gifts. When I think of a church full of people gifted beyond what we could imagine, but no love, that just sounds like a hellhole to me. And it has been for many. But if we have love, we start to experience our salvation and the inheritance that God has given us. So let's live that now. So just some application for this. How do we live this out? Paul says in the next verse that I wasn't a part of this chapter, he says, earnestly desire the gifts, but pursue love. Gifts are like Christmas. I want a 49ers jersey, or I want a board game. Hope I get it. But love is like your PhD. Love is like your career. You go after it. You make it happen. The gifts, Paul's saying, God gives them to you. Just hope for them, desire them. But love is your responsibility. Make it your life's ambition. And so I think probably, I'll say this for myself, many of us are imbalanced. We're pursuing the gifts or talent and accomplishments more than love. Flip that. Pursue be obsessed, be anxious about love, loving, loving, loving. Meditate on love. Meditate on your actions. Are they loving? 
Seek God's help in loving. Watch other people who are loving. Pursue love. Also, embrace the journey. We're not going to arrive. We're going to have to grow into this. We're going to have to learn in time and space what it means to be patient. And you're not just going to get there. You're going to struggle. You're going to have to apologize. I think I say sorry to my kids as often as I say I love them. We're going to have to walk in this. We need to be patient, but we have to learn not to be passive. We need to be kind, but not blind. We have to journey with love and be wise with love. And lastly, maybe this is obvious. I felt like I had to say this though. Love one another. Pursue each other so that you can love each other. Be present with God's people. Don't lose your saltiness or you're good for nothing. Salt has to make contact to have its effect. Take steps of faith and courage to engage with each other regularly with vulnerability. Let people speak into your life. Help walk with people in being loving. Find examples to follow. That's probably the number one way I have grown in love if I've been able to grow. Seeing people who are loving. Second, though, is people who've called me out, by the way. So, Maybe be a beacon of love for someone who is struggling. So if we, have, we, if we as a church have not love, we are nothing. We gain nothing. We're a hunk of junk, a hunk of concrete, taking up space in El Cerrito if we have not love. But if we have love for one another, the world will know we are truly Jesus' disciples. Let me pray. Lord, um, I hope this would be one of, if not the deepest cry of our hearts, Lord, that we would love you and love one another. But Lord, we thank you that that flows out of your love for us, that you first loved us. I pray you would help us feel your love deeply in our souls so that we can begin to pour out love for others so that we can be free to not be self-obsessed but to be obsessed with loving others, Lord, of, of being seeking others' advantage because not because we don't care about ourselves but because we know you are caring for us, Lord. You are our provision. You are our refuge. You are our rock. You are our salvation. You are our glory. Help us walk in that day by day more and more. Pray this in Christ's name.